You're listening to an ACA podcast. Hi, welcome everyone. Um, thanks for coming out and braving the cold of the wintry Melbourne um, evening. Um, it's lovely to have this intimate little group here. Um, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Shelley McSpedden. I'm the senior curator here at ACA. Um, and it's my pleasure um, to be interesting, to introducing the esteemed New York-based writer and curator, Lara Rekovic, um, tonight to speak about Me Too Sam's incredible show, Mother Tongue, but in the context of Lara's um, broader work, which is looking at the ways that museums can be rethought of um, and the different kinds of modes that we could adopt to kind of make them service communities better. Um, before I go on, on behalf of Akka and myself, I'd really like to acknowledge that we meet here tonight on Wawandri Wunurong country and that the Wawandri people are the sovereign custodians of the land on which we gather, along with the Bunurong and Banarong and the wider Kulin nations. I acknowledge their long-standing and continuing care of country and recognise First Peoples' art and cultural practices have been thriving here for millennia. I extend my respect to ancestors and elders past and present, and to all First Nations people, especially those who are joining us tonight. Um, so, our illustrious guest, uh, Lara Reykjavik, um, will be speaking tonight, and uh, has had a formidable career. Um, I won't go into all the details and ins and outs, but some recent highlights include her work as editor and curator of Proto-Dispatch, a digital publication featuring artists' perspectives on transcontinental political, social, economic, and environmental concerns. And also her recent um, publication, Culture Strikes, Art and Museums in the Age of Protest, um, which was published in 2021 by Verso Books, and which we'll be getting into our shop shortly. Um, <laughs> uh, Lara is currently working alongside a collective of artists, musicians, and cultural workers to open Francis Kite Club which I believe is a bar cultural activist space um, that we opened in um, the East Village later this year? In June. In June, so very, very um, soon. And Lara is a really well positioned tonight to speak to Mitu's work, having been known her for many, many years. Um, and in that context has also created and a beautiful, lively, playful, enlightening interview with Mitu that will be published as part of our catalogue for this show. Uh, that catalogue will be in our bookshop really soon, so keep an eye out for that too. We're really lucky to have Lara here tonight. Um, she's in Melbourne for one night only on her way to the Amaga National Conference, that being the Museums and, um, Association Conference taking place in Newcastle. Um, so thank you so much for making the effort to be here. Um, and please put your hands together to welcome Lara. Hello, how's it going tonight? Okay. Um, thank you, thank you everyone for being here. Um, I'm delighted to be in, uh, in Melbourne this evening. And um, I've prepared um, kind of a, an homage to Me Too that intertwines a lot of my own thinking about the way that institutions can do more. So, I'll just begin by saying 
that as a person who is fortunate to live on unceded Lenape lands, I am thrilled to be here with all of you on territories cared for over millennia by the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung peoples. Did I get it? Oh, I'm working on it. I want to take a moment to uh, acknowledge the connection between land and culture held by First Nations peoples across continents and wish to offer my gratitude for their ongoing stewardship of culture and country as well as recognize their sovereignty. I'd also like to thank Max Delaney and Shelley McSpedden and Elise Goldfinch um, from ACA for their generous invitation here tonight. And to thank Me Too Sen, who's been a dear friend for many years, um, and, um, and her friendship and art have rhymed and challenged my thinking so often over the years, as hopefully I'll um, give you a taste of tonight. When Me Too and I met nearly a decade ago, I visited her studio in Delhi, a space crammed with her children, as she called them, a space where the separation between art and life, installation and beloved objects blurred pleasingly in a way that deeply resonated for me. We looked at her work, both physical and on her computer screen, and when I left, I knew I had made a friend, Me Too from the outset, was a fellow traveler. Several years later, I lived for some months with one of her iconic works. I was then director of the Queen's Museum, and we hosted a sprawling exhibition of modern and contemporary Indian art. Me Too's work, Museum of Unbelonging, was installed in a dimly lit gallery of its own, over which a sort of hush existed. It wasn't a particularly quiet space, but a certain quiet descended each time I ventured into it, which I did nearly daily for the run of the show. MOU, or Museum of Unbelonging, comprises a large donut-shaped glass case, the form unusual for a museum vitrine. A circle doesn't fit neatly into a typically rectilinear gallery. It's a feminine form within masculine space. It nods towards infinity. The case itself holds all manner of small objects, some broken, others repaired or augmented with elements like an eyeball or a string of pearls. Still others seem to be talismans, phalluses made of clay, good luck charms, dolls with missing limbs, or souvenir-like kitschy items. Everything a bit strange and damaged, beloved and enchanted. I was drawn to the space of this artwork because I recognized Me Too's instincts to gather up such items and arrange them, one next to the other. They whispered little stories and poems to me. Each time I visited, a new favorite item or grouping emerged. Their relationships to each other struck a chord in my psyche or memories triggering my imagination. These weren't long sessions. They only took several minutes to unfold, but they were affecting. Just as I was attracted to the intentional miscellany in Me Too's studio, I was even more deeply captivated by this work. It was mysterious and familiar at the same time. I thought of the little stones and objects I'd picked up on beaches and over my travels that are now arranged with care on the edges of my bookshelves. Here, it is as though 
they protect the ideas inside the books or confer positive energies on my thinking as I rifle through their charges looking for a missing quote or an image of an artwork. They are little shrines to no particular deity, but they comfort me and they give me pleasure. And yet, while mine are at home and special for my very personal reasons, here are me too's in a museum case, albeit an unusual one. Her oddball items are not only in a vitrine, they are displayed within a museum as part of an exhibition with a catalog, curatorial texts, and educators swirling around. This work stays with me. I've been thinking about it since I spent all that time with it at the Queen's Museum. And while I was entranced by the whispered narratives I received as gifts for looking deeply and often, I also recognize that the work functions on another level entirely. Me too was upsetting the apple cart of museum expectations in some profound ways. More obviously, around modes of display, and perhaps less obviously, around the ways in which value is conferred in cultural space. In a museum context, items inside vitrines are there because they are precious, not just emotionally precious to a single person, but precious from an art historical perspective, and valuable in both cultural and market terms. In the case of the Museum of Unbelonging, outside of the fact that the collection of these odds and ends were understood as an artwork made by an international artist, the individual elements appear to have neither a specific art historical tether nor a particular market value. This is an example of the kind of opening Me Too's artwork often produces. By declaring her particular personal vision of the universe, she reveals the way society's assumptions impact how we encounter life and how those perceptions unfold in time. Her choice to gather and display these children of hers in this particular vitrine, Museum of Unbelonging, is a radical act of recentering her own points of view in place of those of unnamed experts or institutional know-how. And here is where this work in particular becomes embedded in my own as a writer and curator. I see our cultural spaces as necessary, important, hopeful environments with so much potential to provide a locus for life, art, and exchange. However, a major obstacle stands in the way. The nearly ubiquitous insistence that such biases do not manifest within cultural organizations. In fact, these very biases are threaded through the very structure of museums and cultural space, their histories, their buildings, their ways of working. Me Too illustrates the impossibility of denying this reality through her art. And understanding the Museum of Unbelonging in this way opens yet another avenue for us to witness how art and artists have the power to shift perceptions of the world around us. The ways in which histories are told, particularly by memory institutions like museums, is indeed powerfully biased. This isn't necessarily negative, but it's real. Individual biases are centered on our own experiences of the world and our position within it. Those of institutions are embedded in their founding realities and mission. And this is the central concern of my recent book, Culture Strike, Art and Museums in an Age of Protest. 
The book takes a close look at recent controversies around culture, largely from my context in New York and the United States, from the swirl of revelations about how the Sackler family's fortune was made to the latest COVID era demands for unionization and equity amongst museum staffs. I look here at how neutrality in all of its institutional guises manifests itself in the presentation of art, its selection and collecting, the public relations undertaken to shape messaging, where funds come from to pay for culture, how these systems are governed, and who and how the operations of museums support systems of power. This book not only offers analyses of the sometimes obscured problematics of museums, but also points towards some ways they can be better for more people. Questions I approach through speculative thought, including how we might act collectively to achieve these important transformations within the cultural field. The work of artists, of course, plays a key role in how much a, a culture and how such a culture shift might unfold. As an artist, Me Too Sen uses her own worldview as a way to lever open the idea that while something may be deeply personal, it simultaneously can be offering, can be an offering to the imaginations of others. And her work accesses a space wherein she is giving public something concrete and giving permission for multiple realities to be reflected. With Museum of Unbelonging, Me Too also asks questions about what comprises the value of artworks and how museums confer value and status to items in their cases on display. And she makes a further point with this work, one she makes throughout this remarkable exhibition here at ACA. Me Too insists on the value of her perspective, her point of view, her ways of seeing the world. In all her subjectivity, she shows us that just as she has a very specific worldview, so too do the institutions that hold art. That theirs is no more universal than hers. That museums and cultural spaces, in fact, represent some extremely specific biases, whether they come clean about it or not. In my work as a recovering museum director, I'm constantly asking myself how cultural spaces can better serve their publics. How, by owning up to the fact that museums are not and have never been neutral, and how art like that of Me Too Sen can help us understand why this is so important. At the center of what I learned in writing Culture Strike, there are several ideas beyond the impossibility of neutrality that I'd like to focus on tonight. The first is that if we really want to affect shifts in the way and ways in which culture is perceived and functions in society, we must slow down. Slowing down will allow those of us inside institutions to deeply reconsider our work. The late capitalist logics of the museum require an ever faster churning of programs and projects to raise the funds required to draw ever larger audiences. Ironically, to fund those very programs expands costs of operations, creating an endless cycle of growth. Indeed, the seemingly pa paradoxical reality may be our biggest challenge. But what if we 
deliberately slow that flow, move in the opposite direction. Rather than more, faster, how about less, deeper? How about both and, rather than either or? Today, many institutions are being challenged to be more equitable spaces by their publics. These challenges range from calls to more closely examine sources of private funds and to expand representation of historically marginalized groups within programs and staffing structures, to the organization of unions for greater labor rights and advocacy for decreasing culture's climate impacts. To do any of these takes time, never mind to undertake it all, which clearly needs to be a priority. So, we have to ask, how can institutions attend to even a fraction of what is being demanded without slowing other processes and activities down to reimagine and remake institutional structures? How can the ideals of true equity, diversity, inclusion, and belonging be pursued without actually having more people in the room, longer conversations, taking more time to listen and to hear one another? And let me tell you, I'm very good at making executive decisions. You can give me a set of realities and I'll happily chart a path for you if you want me to. But my answer will be predicated on my experiences, my life, my biases. And I think that the decision would be better if more people, if in fact, I think this, uh, sorry. And I think this decision would be better for more people if, in fact, more people were part of making it. And I know there's a deep-seated disregard for decision by committee. This phrase is often used to describe decisions that are half-baked and heavily compromised. However, what if decision-making was intentionally informed by a broader set of viewpoints, life experiences, perspectives? Particularly in the cultural context of running a museum, can't we envision a way of working differently that might actually result in some more interesting outcomes? Ones that might invite more people into the conversation? One that was premised on the exchange of knowledges rather than the projection of expertise? Me Too further contributes to this conversation through her work with what she names the un- her un is a mirror to my desire to undo and redo. Unbelonging, for example, does not mean exclusion. Me Too has made artworks from hairs that have fallen from her head. She has ascribed to this loose hair a new life. It becomes something else. It's not the same thing as when it was attached to her head. By becoming detached, it has undergone a transformation. As Me Too told me in a conversation we had as she was preparing this exhibition, I'm rejecting the before and after comparison because it creates a pressure on your own individual becoming. It puts you in a judgmental space. The hair can be both and. These transformations happen over and over in Me Too's work, especially when they relate to the body, blood, teeth, whether they're real teeth or fake teeth, gums, the universal pinkness of our bodily interiors. In all of these examples, Me Too uns 
the terms in the items in question, hair, teeth, etc. The un creates alternate ways of seeing or thinking. It's a question of seeing the world through a lens that is not easy to access for most of us, and yet might just be our battered society's way to confront many of our social, ecological, political, and economic crises, as well as what happens within cultural space. In fact, part of my obsession with what happens in cultural space is informed by my conviction that because such environs so closely mirror that of the larger society, art and experiments with operating our institutions differently might just give us clues about how to undo and redo the larger society. And so I return to the un by embracing both and rather than either or and by unning the world. Me too is battling the binary. Every time I see her work, read about it, I think both and. And let's add this. Let's do this too, and why not another layer, as you'll see throughout this exhibition if you haven't seen it yet. And maybe these are among the potential strategies to apply in the undoing and redoing of cultural space as well. It might at least be a way to begin. I've been returning recursively to this set of ideas for some years now. And one of the biggest obstacles, particularly in the US, where cultural spaces are overwhelmingly funded by private philanthropy and individual generosity, is the way in which late capitalism has narrowed the imagination of what might even be possible. Me Too, being awesome, also addresses this narrowing through an insistence on creating myths and unmyths. These are fractured realities that exist in synchronicity with each other, even as they are clearly in tension. Of her performance, of her performance work, for example, Me, Me Too has said, I use my body intentionally in these performances. I use the viewer's gaze and how it falls on my body, and I give it back to them. I amplify their expectations of seeing a South Asian woman with long black hair who is babbling in an unlanguage. They think, oh, she's otherworldly, a spiritual woman. And for me, this is all acted. What they see is the myth, and the myth is always constructed for the benefit of others. And my role is to un those myths and other social conventions. Whatever is cold or normative, idealized or replicated, I try to deconstruct this whole megalithic structure by starting with something that you want to see. You've come to see Me Too Sen perform with a beautiful sari and flowing hair. You already have something in your mind in the myth of Me Too. So you expect those things and you might receive this visual, but I'm playing with your mind. Me Too's work is also constantly shifting, shape-shifting, mind-shifting. This is a part of the anti-capitalist and political commitments inscribed in her work. She destabilizes the capitalist and imperial need for a forward marching logic of progress and production. 
This is perhaps most obviously visible in her resistance to making exclusively very beautiful objects. Early in her career, Me Too became known for exquisite drawings and the marketplace responded. Keenly aware of, <clears throat> of this relationship to the market and unwilling to be overdetermined by this dimension of herself, she veered in unexpected directions via aesthetic and media choices. She reinscribed the both and rather than the either or. The politics of this type of engagement is clear to me, and the constant shifting of what the work looks like, its materiality, and even the way she makes decisions about new bodies of work, particularly seeing after which work gets support from the market or institutions and which doesn't. This pokes at perceptions of Mitu Sen as an artist, and also at the ultimate viability of her practice. Her politics are also visible in her experiments in digital and social media, in works such as How to Be a Successful Artist. She takes the standard PowerPoint instructional lecture and turns it on its head. She claims to do what a Harvard, Harvard Business School course for high-achieving artists might but rather she becomes a virus in the form of the lecture. Her instructional video threatens to destabilize any notion of what, what, might, what it might really mean to be successful as an individual artist or even with respect to the art world itself. She says, no matter where I am, I constantly deconstruct the ideas that others project on me. And I'm not denying these projected identities even if I'm expected to be a clown or an entertainer, whatever the fantasy might be, but I can play with them, use them. And so there's humor too. Me Too's work often makes me laugh to myself. Her unning allows her to project the fallibility of language and the necessity of engaging intuition. Again, a move towards honoring and foregrounding the importance of the senses that live outside of the intellectual realm, outside of the rational. Play, humor, affection, therefore, take on essential roles in remapping what might comprise human intelligence and interaction in Me Too's world. The intuitive gets to exist on the same plane as the intellectual and the rational, both and. This too is a political move to decenter post-enlightenment assumptions about knowledge and to open access to the ancient knowledges embedded in every human's epigenetic code through millennia of existence and experience. In this commitment to her international, to, sorry, in this commitment to intergenerational knowledges, we arrive at the feminist core of Me Too Sen's work. We arrive at timescales that are geologic or cosmic rather than measurable in human lifetimes. We come to infinity. Through Me Too's invitation towards infinity, we also arrive at her strategies that hold space for what cultural institutions can offer to very many more people than they currently are able to engage. Me Too invites participation by constructing the scene, casting breadcrumbs for people to challenge both her as an artist and also 
themselves. Her choreography is controlled, yes, but it is controlled in order to entice the imaginations of others. My experience of her work is that I enter into Me Too's world. I give myself over because I know what's coming. I expect her to challenge my intellect and my sensory capacities. I have to drop my guard to let in her intuitions and mine. I inevitably make unexpected connections, ones that Me Too doesn't intend in part because she and I have different lives. And yet there's a connection between us, indelible in the way it expands both of our imaginations. This exchange of insights, whether vocalized or simply experienced in a moment in time in a dimly lit gallery, makes meaning in our lives. This making of meaning in our world is predicated upon our ability to see outside of ourselves, of our own experiences, of our lives. To take what we individually know and allow, allow to be influenced by what we might learn from others. And perhaps most importantly, we have to acknowledge what we don't even know we don't know. Experiences of art and culture is where this happens most saliently for me. When I visit with artists, hear about their work, see art that moves me, it's like falling into that space of not knowing, of reconsidering everything. And that is the space we need to make a more livable world, or even to attempt to save this one. And I'd like to invite us to have a conversation uh, as I finish, but maybe I'll end this little presentation with my favorite joke, which I started with which I started my interview with me too, which is which would, to me is meaningful because somehow it relates to connecting all of these ancient knowledges and playing with words and intuitions. And so you know, at the end of the day, maybe having a good laugh together is a is the best thing we can hope for. So, what did the zero say to the eight? Nice belt. <laughs> and it's my favorite joke because I heard it from a mom at school when my son was little and it's like the perfect, it's like a fashion joke that's also like a numbers joke and a language joke all at once. So anyway, I leave you with that. But I'm happy, I would love to talk with you, especially if you've seen the exhibition about some of the things you understand about Me Too that maybe I haven't seen. and. I'd love questions, yeah. The microphone who's any, for anyone who's brave enough to start. Or about my work, otherwise I'm happy to, to talk about other things. Thanks, Laura, that was just so hypnotic and poetic. I hope you're publishing that essay <laughs> along with the interview. I just wondered if you could dwell on um, some of the threads between the exhibition you curated at Queen's Museum and what you see here, what are the recursions, recurrences, differences? Right. Well, I, the, the exhibition at the Queen's Museum uh, was a group show, it was a massive group show of Indian modern and contemporary art, and so it really traced, and I didn't curate it, it was curated by um, a curator whose name I can't remember because I'm still a little foggy from all the traveling around, Arshia, 
what's Arshil's last name? Anyway, something with an L. In any case, it's on the Queen's Museum's website. It's, uh, but um, so, so she, really, Me Too only had uh, MOU, Museum on Belonging, in the show as a physical object. And then she also made a performance uh, of the unlanguage, um, which was really remarkable because, you know, the Queen's Museum, uh, just to give you a little context, is um, a really remarkable institution because it's in Queens, which is one of the most ethnically and racially diverse places on the planet. I mean, there are over 365 different languages and dialects spoken in Queens, and the audiences for the programs at the museum really reflect that enormous diversity. Um, and so there was always this linguistic problem that we had at the museum where it was about like, well, how do you, do you translate into which languages? Sure, you know, Spanish, Mandarin, and Bangla are the most, you know, spoken languages, but like, what does that even mean? You know, if a text is written in kind of a curatorial voice, as it might serve an artist, does that mean it needs to be translated into another different type of register by other contributions? You know, like we, we always struggled with these questions. We always had people in the galleries as attendants who, um, who spoke multiple languages to kind of facilitate the literal and uh, conceptual translation of the works, if you will. Um, but what, what Me Too did in, in bringing this performance of The Un, and I don't know if you've seen the show, but what she does is she kind of speaks in this babble language that's an un language. Um, and it's, um, it's so interesting because it really sheds a deep, like a really strong light on how much what we communicate is not actually the words that we speak. It's the way we talk, the way we move our head, our face, our eyes, our mouths, the, our body language. So very little of it is actually in the words themselves. And as she walked through the space and kind of, you know, there was this really interesting group of people that were convened that weren't like really art world people and so it really changed the context because I've, I've seen her also do this performance in kind of more arty spaces like at, in Venice for the Biennale. She, had, she was in an exhibition there and she made one of these performances where clearly everybody was expecting the Me Too of the gorgeous sari and the long flowing hair and the like spiritual lady, you know. Um, but here it was quite different because it was you know, she was, I mean, there were women wearing saris in the audience, you know, so it wasn't, it had a very different valence, right? And my son, who was very young at the time, and I think he was totally entranced by this, and they made, like, such a deep connection, the two of them, and I think partially because he was so recently pre-language that he kind of, like, understood more deeply where she was coming from. So... Even though there were only those two works, it was like, uh, for in a way, I mean, that's why I, I focus so much on MOU because I, I've spent the most time with that work because I literally was there with it every day. Um, but with the unwork as well, because this linguistic play that she has, I think is extremely um, available 
even in its incomprehensibility. I'll just mention that Me Too did an amazing version of that performance at the VCA um, the other day. David, I don't know if you want to talk at all about that experience of uh, listening and programming that talk. Is that, not to put you on the spot, but I think it's, it's a very interesting connection. I mean, I think, um, hi, I'm David. Hi, David. Hi. Nice to meet you. Likewise. Um, look, I don't know Me Too as, as well as you do, but I've I've been to a couple of performances and the one at the VCA, and I know that there were people here who were at that event, um, left our audience quite speechless. And um, I think for me, the, the lack of, uh, I mean, it, it wasn't about art, it was art. Right. And that exactly. cr creating a space in an auditorium with, with ugly chairs and bad lighting and all of that where art can happen, where art breathes and has a smell and a touch and uh, has a sound is, um, you know, it's, it's quite a different experience to we come and see the show and then we hear the artist talk about it. That's right. We actually came to the show and then the show crossed the road to the and, and extended itself, and um, and kind of transformed that that theatre space, and it um, it just reminded me of the difference between talking about something, like 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 you're at the um, you know like you're at a sporting event. Yeah. There's being in the stands and watching the event, and then there's being on the court. Yeah while the ball's coming at you, you know, and, and it's, a, it's, it's just a game changer. Yeah. Um, and I think there's something about this work that's a bit like that. We, I don't really get the experience of looking at something rather than being in something. Yeah. And I think particularly what Me Too has done in this massive space where she's literally connected with a line, a through line, all of the work. So it's quite literal that she's done that. But at the same time, she's like inviting us to use our own imaginations to connect the dots. Because it's not like she's spelling out for you why one thing is attached to the other or like why some medium, you know, it's not all the video works. It's not all the performances. It's this, she's decategorizing to liberate our imaginations. And I think that that is like, that is exactly, I mean, I, I thank Thank you for saying that because I think this invitation and this ability to create a space where like we're embedded in the making of meaning is so powerful in Me Too's work. And this is why I find it like that, I, this is why I insist on the, the fact that she's destabilizing everything in order to allow us to see the world in a different way. Even to say, you know, it's not just about me, folks, even though she's insistent upon her viewpoint, it's because she wants to invite yours into that space too. She wants it to be about this exchange of knowledges, of realities, of people, of, you know, she, she's, she's so generous in that way. And I think this first room, I think MOU does that too, but it's a more contained artwork. But I just saw the show for the first time today and I was just overwhelmed by how fantastic it is in real life. It's just like you're in Me Too's world. There's no doubt about it. And you're suddenly thinking about her father dying and 
you know, we've all had such profound experiences around death over the last several years in relationship to the pandemic, you know? And we're, it, it's, it's just so raw, you know? She allows us to see these parts of herself that are so raw and vulnerable. And, um, and so it's tender, too. It's not just this intellectual exercise. It touches something, you know? Well, thank you all. Thank you. Thank you. Huge round of applause for Lara Reykjavik.